0: you found the podcast where conversation is alive and well and celebrated hello i'm jordan and this is on mike with jordan rich today former bbc editor reporter adventurer and now memoir writer chris wolf here to talk about his brand new book bumbling through the hindu kush a memoir of fear and kindness in afghanistan The story begins 30 years back when our guest, then a young cub reporter for the BBC, visits a colleague based in Afghanistan, and shortly after he arrives in Kabul, the two of them wander into a war zone, encountering death, destruction, fear, landmines, you name it. The beginning of 10 unbelievable days as they traveled through the country, guided by Abdullah Abdullah, who later became Afghanistan's chief executive. We'll talk also about the fact that he and his fellow reporter were the first to cross battle lines and interview a legendary Mujahideen leader. As I sit down with Chris, this couldn't come at a more opportune time as Afghanistan has descended into turmoil once again, with the oppressive Taliban regime taking over, the United States and the West leaving too many behind. The author of Bumbling Through the Hindu Kush, a memoir of fear and kindness in Afghanistan, on Mike with Chris Wolf. I'm really excited to be chatting with you, Chris. Uh, What a story, bumbling through the Hindu Kush. Before we get to some of the intricate elements of the story, let's talk about you and your background. BBC, of course, but also military. What was your military experience?
1: Uh, Well, I was in the British equivalent of the National Guard, the Territorial Army, Mm -hmm. as an infantry private for uh, three years, uh, which was the stint that I signed up for and uh, was discharged honorably, uh, but spent most of that time um, digging trenches um, in Germany, uh, trying to stop the, the Red Army if they ever decided to roll across the North German Plain.
0: Well, you were successful. <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you. So t-
1: did a you know, small part.
0: We were providing the speed bump, so we just right. ourselves. Well, congratulations. Thanks for serving. Okay, let's talk about Afghanistan. It's so prevalent in our news and uh, so many issues uh, geopolitically. But yours is a personal story. What what brought you to that? country, and when? Let's set the stage. Uh,
1: So, it's 1991. i had been with the BBC World Service for a few years, and it was at that point in my career where I thought this could be a possible life for me as a foreign correspondent. A friend of mine had got the job as the Kabul correspondent and said, well, why don't you come and visit? And uh, that seemed like a perfect way to uh, pique my curiosity about Afghanistan, find out what the life of a foreign correspondent was like, and um, and take it from there.
0: When one says, come and visit a place like Boston, or London, or uh, dare I say, even uh, New Delhi, it's a little different than saying, let's come to visit Afghanistan in the middle of a war.
1: Well, I didn't think it would be particularly dangerous. The war was very active, but at that moment was stalemated. So, the communist government, the government that had uh, had been installed by the Soviet Union during their occupation in the 1980s, was still clinging on to power. And so they controlled the Kabul and most of the major cities and most of the major roads. And um, when I said to my buddy, Chris, uh, well, it would be lovely to see more of the country than just the capital, I assumed we would have flown from one safely held mm. government-controlled city to the next. But instead, we uh, hitched a ride with an aid convoy and bumbled right into trouble, as they say.
0: Yeah, there's so many fascinating stories. I want to talk to you about the Russian POWs, which I found quite impressive in terms of reporting. But some say that it's a country that hasn't really changed in in a thousand years. When you land there, what does it look like? I mean, not Kabul necessarily, but the countryside. Any different than it would have been 800 years ago?
1: Um, Yes, I think it's a bit of a myth to think that the country is, um, you know, unchanging. There's always lots of changes taking place, you know, socially and um, economically and uh, otherwise. But the countryside, yes, is very much still, as it, I would say, hasn't changed in thousands of years. There's still, you know, you could see people threshing corn on mm-hmm. the road uh, and using the flails that the, that would have been used by our ancestors 2,000 years ago and uh, incredibly labor-intensive work and just threshing corn in, in the traditional way, living in um, homes that are constructed you know, with mud bricks and adobe, as they have been for hundreds or thousands of years as well. But on, in the cities where people are increasingly moving to, uh, it's very different. There's modern buildings, uh, there's uh, construction, there's education. And so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a mosaic of different cultures and, and um, uh, societies in many ways.
0: It's interesting, too, that uh, the geography provides an advantage to those fighters who are repelling invaders, whether they be the Soviets or, dare I say, the West, the geography, right, Right. the mountains and, and the passes and so forth.
1: Exactly. And it also makes it hard for any government in Kabul, whether or not there's foreigners present Uh, Or not uh, to control all of the country. And, you know, we may see now, uh, without wanting to stare into a crystal ball, that the Taliban might have trouble holding on to the entire country as directly as they might like, just because of those centrifugal forces that make any insurgency um, viable in Afghanistan.
0: What was it like being a, a member of the press and a member of the Western press? Uh, how were you treated by those in the power sector, those in the communist government, and then those fighting them? Because you were a Brit and because you were BBC.
1: Uh, d- again, it depends where we were at which particular time. So in the capital, it's all very polite and everybody seems to be uh, very official and um relatively hands-off. We weren't assigned a minder, for example, you know, listening into every conversation that we had. Uh, But then out in the country, we did at one point run afoul of the secret police, uh, which is an adventure in and of itself. Um, And then, of course, we crossed the rebel lines. uh, Like most of the time, I didn't really realize that we were crossing the lines, because the militia and the government and the rebels all looked the same. But then we um, were on the rebel side of the line and they were very keen to make the case to the outside world that they could uh, run the country if they took power and so it, we were shown a, a very kind of organized and uh, local government with cities running with policemen in smart uniforms directing traffic with whistles and white caps and white gloves uh, to health care and education and um and so on and so forth. But there's obviously always the risk of government attack at any time. Uh, and it's interesting being with the rebels because, you know, as an American you always think, well, air power's on our side, right? Well, at that time the communists had all the uh, air power and it was the rebels who were afraid of the strikes. So that's, a, that's an mm. interesting experience as well.
0: The Mujahideen, uh, they were our friends when the Soviets were there. And then, of course, uh, all all things changed. But you had an amazing encounter with somebody who's considered legendary, uh, the leader of the Mujahideen at the time, Ahmed Shah Massoud. How did you, first of all, tell us who he is and was, and how did you actually get a chance to interact with him?
1: Uh, Massoud is an, was, uh, uh, sadly, he was Mm -hmm. killed on the eve of uh, 9-11 by al-Qaeda, was uh, one of the greatest generals of the 20th century. He, as a young man, had, galvanized and organized and led the resistance to the Soviets in his home turf, the Panjshir Valley and some neighboring valleys, and withstood nine all-out assaults by the Red Army, which you know, as a soldier is an incredible thing to know, to imagine all that firepower, uh, the tanks and the artillery and the air support uh, trying to crush out his insurgency. And the fact that he was able to withstand it was incredible. And at the same time run part of the, the areas that he liberated or controlled uh, as efficiently and relatively um, honestly and um, and I wouldn't say kindly but um without the kind of terror that you might expect in an area liberated by a you know, desperate resistance so an incredible fella um, and um yes we were privileged enough to um, meet him and interview him and um get to know him a little bit
0: mm. and you you mentioned that he was assassinated he was killed the day before 911 and that is very important because he was murdered on the behest of Osama bin Laden and uh, we all know what transpired after that you wonder what would have happened had he not been assassinated
1: well, I know. He, I think obviously he was the only credible leader remaining who was still fighting the Taliban. Mm-hmm. So let's not forget after the Soviets and left and the communists uh, fell, the Mujahideen started squabbling amongst themselves. And that eventually led to the rise of the Taliban to seize control of most of the country. And he held out against the Taliban as well and was obviously the the person we, the United States and the West, would have gone to for help and assistance in fighting the Taliban uh, after nine eleven, and so Al Qaeda um, apparently was smart enough to try and head off that possibility by taking him out.
0: Yeah, it's sort of like a, a mafia strategy, you know, take out the opposition before they have a chance to react. Uh, we're talking with exactly. Chris Chris Wolf, former BBC editor, and his memoir is terrific. Bumbling through the Hindu Kush. A Memoir of Fear and Kindness in Afghanistan. The word bumbling, you're self-deprecative here because you can't help but feel for you as you're reading this book going through these landmines, and they're not figurative. They're literal landmines. What's it like to encounter a minefield, and what do you do? Um,
1: you're very careful. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, And also, um, ignorance is bliss. Uh, Mm -hmm. It seems... Uh, as I learned uh, in researching the book as I was writing it in the last year or so, uh, tracked down pretty much everybody I could find who was still alive, uh, who could like correct or clarify uh, my own notes and memories. And uh, pretty much I was I realized that I was lied to uh, that the minefield was as dangerous as we thought. So just so people are aware this were we were worried about anti-tank mines. And which had been laid on in the potholes on the on the road that we were on, and the uh, my companions um, pretty much fibbed to me, saying, "Oh, we're not heavy enough to set them off." And whereas I learnt just in the course of the last year that, "Oh, we were very much heavy enough <laughs> to, enough to set off the the mines." So that was pretty terrifying. And then mm-hmm. in the fields, obviously, you're worried about anti-personnel mines again. You can trip on or, or step on and pressure activate. Uh, mines that'll pop up and blow your legs off mm. very easily. So again, I had a very rough and ready, a quick education from, um, the people I was traveling with in how to avoid those kind of uh, obstacles, which is, uh, basically to not step on any turned earth yes, and try please. to only stay on pavement.
0: Oh my and, God.
1: And that in- includes when you're stopping for a pit stop, it's suddenly there. Well, there's no privacy now. So, um, That's uh, Mm. interesting, but you can't help but feel for the poor farmers who have no choice but to go out into the fields. It's their livelihood. And still to this day, uh, over 2,500 Afghans are killed and wounded by the mines left by the Soviets um,
0: still to this day. Well, you saw the impact of the Soviets brutality I mean the fact is they don't fight by the same rules that the West fights by not that fighting is (laughs) a pleasant experience but they were as brutal as any regime could ever be and still they couldn't turn back the Taliban they couldn't turn back the Mujahideen
1: no there was no real attempt to win what we might call hearts and minds when there's one strategic pass that we traveled through where which had been entirely depopulated you know when you read you know the rather bland phrase uh, an area was laid waste in a in a history book and then to actually see a hundred miles of a valley which was you know relatively rich and and you could see the ruined farmhouses but every civilian had been cleared out because the soviets wanted to make sure or to minimize the risk to their supply convoys that had to come through that pass, um and just to see that kind of devastation you know there's not even a a goat or a or a dog, you know, let alone people, yeah. and, and all these um, villages and fields abandoned and neglected for years. Um, it's pretty pretty shocking to see and to realize what must have taken place there.
0: You wrote about the POWs you met. These are Russians captured by the rebels. You share a story about some of them who converted to Islam mm-hmm. and wanted you to take a message back to their families in in Moscow and elsewhere. Can you just relate a little bit of that for our audience? Because it's fascinating.
1: Well, the I went into Afghanistan, you know, having been brought up on the um, British Imperial Poets yeah, Rudyard Kipling stories about you always want to save your last round for yourself if you're in danger of getting captured because the Afghans are very brutal with their prisoners traditionally and so I confronted uh, the Mujahideen, Mujahideen representative that I was speaking with uh, about that and and he said, no, it's um, – well, it does happen, but uh, it's not true that we kill every captive. I'll, I'll bring some over. And so these two guys came over, who um, so one of whom had been with the Mujahideen for nine years, um, and uh, it was just incredible to realize this. I mean, can you imagine actually going to, say, Vietnam in uh, 1978, three years after the last American troops have left, and running into somebody who is still – there with the with the guerrillas. And um, so he had, both of them had converted to Islam and had taken up arms with the Mujahideen, um, one of whom had retired from that career after the Soviets left, but one of whom continued as a bodyguard for Ahmed Shah Massoud, the warlord we mm. were just talking about. So it's um, amazing. They, you know, I can, I interviewed one in depth. He had you know, very sad eyes, you know, and I've always worried for years, like, was he, you know, forced into this? Was it his conversion sincere? Was he a genuine Mujahid now? Um, and then I was, um, during my research, found that he's still alive, has ended up living in Russia, and yes, his conversion was indeed sincere, and his mm. he was indeed very grateful to Masood for sparing his life and um, giving him a new... A new lease on
0: life. I'd like to have you spend a few moments with me and talk about part of the subtitle, which is A Memoir of Fear. We've talked about that, and we will more. Mm-hmm. But also the kindness, because this is important to remember that uh, these are human beings. They're not all warlords. They're not all killers. And uh, they're human beings with souls and lives. But you were touched by some kindness. Give us an example of that.
1: Well, I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the kindness of strangers, and that's a lesson I've tried to uh, keep in mind my entire life and share with my children, you know, that you can't um, be mean to strangers. We were literally stuck in no man's land. There was, um, ended up with um, shells and machine gun fire over our heads in both directions, which is pretty unnerving, I have to say. And then this farmer, Basically, just took us in, no questions asked, and, and sheltered us and fed us, um, and, and refused to take any payment until it was safe to move on. Mm-hmm. And it's it's hard to imagine that that degree of kindness and personal risk, you know, because uh, there was any either of the sides could have come in and assumed, oh, you're sheltering foreigners, you you're a suspect. For that reason, um, r- remember, most Afghans can't tell the difference between a Russian or an American or a Brit. Um, so it's incredible. And I didn't really appreciate it at the time, especially the the fact that they, they were putting themselves at risk. And I, In fact, I was quite paranoid and afraid of them as much as I was of the fighting outside. And uh, it was only with the benefit of hindsight that I realized, oh, no, they, <laughs> they totally just saved us. Um, so, it's a hard thing to grasp. So, that kind of kindness, and many other instances as well, the generosity and hospitality. And uh, yes, there's a few bad actors like there are in any country, but yes, there are people just like us. Um,
0: There are some Afghans living in the Boston area whom I know, Uh, they're restaurateurs and they're wonderful people and uh, they're concerned about what's going on back home. But it's been like that for decades and decades with so many regime changes. A few more points. One is there's, there's a section in the book where you talk about hearing gunfire. And you never heard gunfire in anger before. And your first thought is, is it Guy Fawkes Day? Typical Brit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but, Correct. I mean... Guy Fawkes, yeah. Yeah, but, but you, you do then go on to talk further at, towards the end of the book about the traumatic memories that this causes and the dreams. And I just couldn't help but think of the soldiers from all countries, including Afghan soldiers, who must have ten times the dreams and nightmares. Oh,
1: well, absolutely. I, I approach and I try and hope I make clear in the book my humility in that I really only had a taste of war, a taste of fear. And it still haunted me for, you know, it took me 30 years to get around to writing down and getting it, trying to get it out of my system. Um, and so, yes, it's, um, I've had uh, veterans groups reach out to me and have invited me to speak, um, especially Afghan vets, because they're having um, uh, American veterans of Afghanistan, because they're having a hard time with what's happening. And my, my message regarding that is um, let's not think it was a waste because, yes, it's not good that the Taliban have taken over now. But over the last 20 years, so many of these constituencies have grown in strength and numbers and, and confidence. We're thinking of the, the women, the educated, the, the city dwellers, the minorities. There are um, so many of these constituencies who are repelled. By the ideology of the Taliban, that one hopes that in time they'll be able to force an accommodation uh, with the Af- with the Taliban and, and create a new Afghanistan that is a little bit more inclusive and just. Um, but and and that's not just a pipe dream. I really think those forces are strong enough to eventually do that mm. um, in in some way and in a way of politics that we would not be able to recognize, like there's not going to be an election or anything like that, but somehow they'll force a a
0: way forward. That's a very positive message for those who uh, believe that their work was not done in vain. And that goes for non-military civilian crews and people and press and everyone who partook in this uh, misguided at times adventure.
1: I had a lot of interest from veterans. I was just talking with a woman at the weekend uh, at one of my events. And she served two tours in Afghanistan, and said she really didn't see any of the country or meet any of the people. And um, having glanced through my book, says you seem to have spent so much more time like outside the wire. So I'm, I'm fascinated to learn, you know, what it was like. Uh, and that was from a, a someone who had done two tours. So mm. it's an interesting contrast.
0: Well, before we sign off, the book is called Bumbling Through the Hindu Kush: A Memoir of Fear and Kindness in Afghanistan. Chris Wolf's name is spelled W O O L F. And I know it's available on Amazon and elsewhere, but do you have a website that you'd like to send people to? Uh
1: yes, yeah, so chriswolfbooks.com. We are uh, as of right now. Can you can get the book there, and we will look forward to hearing and we look forward to hearing from you all.
0: Um, very good. Very good. Well, I I was uh, going to interview you no matter what and then afghanistan happened in the news but uh getting your yeah. perspective historically is important and history is the the greatest teacher
1: may it, i might just throw in um, of one course, thing of course of um, course so i wrote the book uh, my daughter do- for several reasons but the first one was my daughter asked me uh, for posterity second one was to get out of my system but it was incredibly useful to have my daughter in mind as i was writing it because I know that she knows nothing about Afghanistan or military matters or journalism even. So I try to bring everybody along on the journey. Uh, it's not one of these books, I hope, that is talking up to, you know, highfalutin mm-hmm. think tanks and academics. It's something that's trying to bring everybody along to understand, you know, what's going on around me.
0: Absolutely. Uh, it's a very readable book. And dare I say, and I don't want to jinx this, but there's a film that should be made. And uh, Who Plays You?, I don't know, a uh, young Michael Caine, he's, not, he's a little too old. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. Thanks. It would be beneficial to have be this film. I am tremendously honored, yeah. and,
1: and, you know, and I hope it does help um, not just entertain, but also right. uh, you know, inform people uh, as well about this, uh, this fascinating country.
0: Chris Wolfe, author of Bumbling Through the Hindu Kush. Great to meet you, and thanks for doing what you're doing, Chris.
1: Thanks so much for your interest, Jordan.
0: Wishing Chris all the best, and our hopes and prayers are with the Afghan people, and with those we left behind. Thanks to the team that puts the podcast together, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, Ken Carberry, and the gang at Chart Productions in Boston. And always, thanks to you for subscribing and downloading the podcast and rating and reviewing us as well. Helps the numbers grow. Till next time, this is Jordan saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.